0: I can't take risks unless my basic needs are met, and Hogwarts promises that the basic needs are met. If I can imagine myself at Hogwarts, then I can start working on esteem needs and I can start working on self-actualization and things like that, and I can kind of jump up a little higher in the hierarchy than I might be in my actual life and be able to start thinking about those things. And of course, it's magical.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Perennials, which if you haven't heard it before, it's a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell, the host, and I'm with Dr. Jill Sermiel tonight, and I just want to say a couple of quick thank yous before we start. Thank you to Merrill and the staff at Short Stories for letting us use the space tonight. It's such a beautiful space. I'm like so happy. It's a so warm and Short Stories in Madison, New Jersey. In Madison, New Jersey, just recently voted the number one town by New Jersey Monthly, I sure. believe. Yeah, um, and thank you to my friends and family who are here, and um, new friends that I haven't met yet who came tonight. Thank you. And thank you to Andy Feldman, who's running sound over there. Andy was a previous guest on the podcast. He's a great musician, and you should check him out on Spotify, Andy Feldman. He's a piano musician. Um, Yeah. And thank you to Jill for being here tonight. Very happy to be here. A lot of our conversation tonight was based on some reading in this book called The Psychology of Harry Potter, edited by Neil Mulholland. So we'll be referencing that. And when I do post the episode online, I'll put a link to the book and some of the specific studies and things that we'll be referencing. Okay, so Jill is a professor of psychology and affiliated faculty member of the Women's and Gender Studies program at Drew University. Her research and teaching interests include gender violence and women's resistance, outcomes and perceptions of self-defense training, feminist psychology and pedagogy, and issues of gender and mental health. And of course, Jill is an avid Harry Potter fan and teaches a course called The Psychology of Harry Potter at Drew for freshman students in their first semester, right? First semester. So I wish I had a time turner and could go back and take that class. Um, They're very lucky. And so I just kind of want to dive right in Um, let's do it i thought we could start kind of where harry starts on his magical journey so i'm assuming most of you are familiar with the books but harry potter when he's 11 years old finds out that he's a wizard and gets invited to attend hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry and when he's on the train going to um hogwarts he starts meeting some of the other students so he meets a boy named ron weasley who comes from a wizarding family that doesn't have a lot of money, but all of his siblings are very accomplished. And he meets a girl named Hermione Granger, who comes from a muggle or non-magical family. And she's very smart and very eager to prove herself. And then he also meets Draco Malfoy, who comes from a pure-blood wizarding family. They're pretty racist, basically. They're awful. Uh, and he meets Neville Lombottom, who also comes from a wizarding family, but is kind of bumbling. And they're all like carrying this baggage of legacy and expectations on the train with them. And they all they start to find out about the different houses that they could get sorted into: Slytherin, Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, or Gryffindor. And these houses are not neutral. Right. Like they have opinions about, oh, God, I hope I'm not a Hufflepuff. Oh, God, I hope I'm not a Slytherin because they all kind of represent different things. Slytherins are ambitious and proud. And basically, we're told that they're evil um, in so many words. Uh, Hufflepuffs are known as being just and loyal and hardworking, but also kind of. Bumbling, maybe. Yeah, they're like, sort of
0: the factory workers of the Hogwarts yeah. school. People right? are they're, like,
1: yeah. eh, they're not cool. Um, they're not the popular kids. Right. Well, Cedric Diggory is, but. Right.
0: With uh, some exception, but for the most part, they're the background. They yes, serve as yes. the background characters for the story. Yeah.
1: Gryffindors are known as being brave and courageous. Ravenclaws are wise and intelligent, right? right. So I wanted to start, since this is a talk about Harry Potter, the psychology of Harry Potter, what does it do to the psyches of these young witches and wizards when we sort them into houses like this at the young age of 11?
0: So one of the things that we know that, you know, developmentally in adolescence, adolescence is a time for identity exploration. And if you're not a wizard or a witch being sorted into a house, it can be a very exciting and a very scary time. So this is when people are trying out different identities, trying to see where they fit in, trying to figure out who they are and who they're not. It's one of the first times that um, they step away from, you know, I'm a Republican because my parents are Republicans, or I'm Protestant because my parents are Protestant, right? And they start to think a little bit about not just, you know, who have I been, but who do I want to be, and how do I sort of negotiate that compared to, you know, who I was told I was supposed to be. And so when students come to Hogwarts, you know, the problem, the identity crisis is solved for them, right? So they come into Hogwarts when they're 11 in their first year, and they put on the sorting hat, right? The sorting hat put put on their head, and it tells them who they are. And there's a whole song, and there's a whole poem, and I'm not going to say it for you because I don't remember it all. But um, it basically, the idea is that the hat is seeing something in them that they may or may not see in themselves, and then it tells them, you're a Ravenclaw, you're a Gryffindor. And then the problem is solved, right? There's no more identity crisis. I now know who I am. That works better for some of them than others, right? And so one of the things that we talk about in my course and one of the things that I think that the book brings up is is the hat finding some real identity. Is it seeing the real me? Is it seeing who I am and I can grow into that? Is it seeing some idealized self, right? So you're not really a Gryffindor. You're not really brave. But I'm telling you you're that, and that can, that's your aspirational self. You can grow into that. Um, and for some of the students, they like their house placement. For some of the students, they don't. For some of them, even as readers, we think if it fits or it doesn't fit. But in Harry Potter, you don't get to change it. And one of the things we see by the end of the story, by the end of the series, is we're no longer questioning any of the placements. right? We agree that these are the Gryffindors, and these are the Slytherins, and this is what happens as if the house was right, as if the house, ha- uh, as if the hat was right, as if the hat saw this thing in these students, and they, it has helped them figure out who they are. The alternate theory, of course, is not that, um, it's, so, so it's a distinction between am I a Gryffindor because I'm brave or am I brave because I'm a Gryffindor, right? So if I'm a Gryffindor because I'm brave, it's that the house saw that bravery in me and put me in the right house. But of course one of the things that we know is people conform to the expectations of their environment. And if we tell students they're smart, they do better. If we tell students they're not smart, they don't. If we treat them like they're incompetent, if we treat them like they're not capable, those are the students who don't do as well academically, right? So we see the same thing with the houses. And the idea is that it's sort of, you know, there's good news and bad news of solving the crisis of identity in adolescence, right? It can be a relief. This is who you are. Nothing else to worry about. You know, we've got it figured out. But it also limits exploration. So if I'm if I'm a Ravenclaw and that means that I'm smart and that I'm intelligent, I don't necessarily get to see how brave I am. I don't necessarily get to figure out if I'm ambitious. No one's talking to me about whether or not I'm loyal, because those aren't my houses. And we see all of those traits in all of the characters, right? Harry's a Gryffindor, but he's also ambitious. Neville is a Gryffindor, but he's also kind. Um, Even Draco Malfoy. Draco's a Slytherin, but he's actually loyal in very particular ways, right? But those aren't the characteristics that we pay attention to, and they're not the characteristics that get highlighted as important. And so I think one of the things that we watch the characters struggle with is coming to terms with who they are within a very particular set of limitations. They don't really get to explore that. They just sort of grow into the mold. It's kind of like you put a This is actually true. If you put a watermelon into a square box, it becomes square. Did you know that? Try it. Try it at home sometime. Um, But it's the same kind of thing. You become a Gryffindor once you're in Gryffindor. Done. Problem solved.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because... Um, Harry is told at some point there isn't a witch or wizard that went bad that wasn't in Slytherin, which is kind of like a double negative. Basically, <laughs> it's a very poorly the... <laughs> worded sentence, but yeah. that is how she writes it. Yeah, All of the evil witches and wizards out there were in Slytherin house. So, if you get sorted into Slytherin, I think at one point someone's like, why don't we just lock them all up? Like, why do we let them flit well, around and learn things just to become more evil and powerful? And they do lock them up in book yes. seven, right? Yeah. So when,
0: when Hogwarts is under attack, Professor McGonagall says, you know, I forget who she talks to, Professor Flitwick, take all of the Slytherins and bring them to the dungeon, right? Right. So we've got, you know, and she's one of the good characters, and yet we have this little concentration camp that's happening in the basement of Hogwarts during this battle, right, during yeah. this time of crisis.
1: And we see as the books go on that no one is, despite the fact that they are are sorted, and that by the end we feel like, okay, that was the proper sorting. These characters are complex. Like, Draco, uh, there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this, so I'm just, I'm sorry. If um, you haven't already
0: read the series, shame on you. Yeah.
1: Um, so Draco can't kill Dumbledore, and, like, you could say that he's weak, or you could say that he's not someone who wants to kill another person, as awful and, like, privileged and annoying and obnoxious as he is. Maybe he's not a killer. And maybe he's
0: brave because what he's defying the wishes of his family, he's defying the wishes of Lord Voldemort, who is the most powerful wizard, right? It takes courage to not
1: do that. And he's actually, by not killing Dumbledore, he's making a conscious choice. And then a lot of people could argue that Snape, who again is the, um, he's the potions master and he's the, um, the head of Slytherin house, uh, he ultimately is someone who protects Harry and sacrifices his life for Harry. So there is complexity that we see by the end of the series. Um, But Harry also feels like, oh, uh, especially over the course of the first two books, he's wondering if the sorting hat put him in the right place. He says to Dumbledore at one point, like, The Sorting Hat said I could have done well in Slytherin. Maybe I'm really meant to be a Slytherin. Maybe I'm not really a Gryffindor. And Dumbledore says a quote, which I put in chalk over there, that it's our choices that show who we truly are far more than our abilities. So I wanted to also unpack a little bit about... What role choice plays in who we are and how we live? Um, I feel like there's often a lot of debate about how much choice and free will we actually have, how much of our lives and our temperament is predetermined. So what can we learn from Harry Potter So a simple question. (laughs) Yeah, very, very simple, succinct question. Well, I think one of the things, maybe the main thing,
0: but one of the things that Dumbledore is talking about with that quote, it is our choices that show who we truly are far more than our abilities is he's talking in part about Harry's choice to be in Gryffindor so you don't actually get to choose what house you're in but you can really 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 hope and beg the hat to put you in the house that you want and so in the in the first book when the hat goes on Harry's head and he's you know the hat sort of musing about where he should put him and you could do well in Slytherin and And Harry says, not Slytherin, not Slytherin. And so Dumbledore is actually suggesting that part of the reason he got put in Gryffindor is because he made a choice. He had a choice between Slytherin. He had a choice between Gryffindor. And he made that choice. And that says more about who he is than about whether he's smart, you know, whether he's brave versus whether he's ambitious, right? Right. Of course, in doing that, Dumbledore is implicitly saying that's the bad house. You made the right choice, right? Bad things would have happened if you did that. But I think one of the things um, that the book highlights for us, and there's a few different quotes about choice that are really interesting, but that, you know, it's only a choice if I see it. So, you know, what I get to do and how I get to be, if I have all of these choices in front of me and I choose Gryffindor right that's a very different outcome that's a very different impact than if I don't think I have a choice and I just get put there right So the perception of whether or not we have a choice and our perception of how much control we have over things in some ways is more important than the control we actually have and we I think we see that in various places in the book. We see Hermione making choices. We see Dumbledore making choices, right? And, and and it's and some sometimes it's less about what the specific choice is, and it's more about how the process of coming to that choice and the decision that they're making to get there.
1: So, since this podcast we, is about growing up and um, you know and gaining wisdom, something that comes up when I think about freedom and choices is how afraid we can be of choices. Like you're saying that it's really important that you feel like you have a choice, so you feel empowered. But at the same time, I think I know for me and a lot of my friends, like you get to young adulthood and suddenly it's like, okay, choose where you want to go to school or what job do you want to do or do you not want to go to school or who's what partner do you want (laughs) to have? Do you want to, you know, as you get older, do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids? And sometimes I think people are like, I wish I didn't have all these options and choices. I, I wish I mean, it's a luxury and a privilege to have choice and it can feel really paralyzing and like terrifying sometimes, I think. Maybe throughout your lifespan, but certainly I think for young adults. So I'm curious to hear. No, I think throughout the lifespan. (laughs) I think that's right. (laughs) So can you talk a little bit about that fear of choice? Yeah, I mean, I think one of
0: one of the things. So Harry is in essentially a British boarding school, which is a little bit different than the American system of education. But when I think about, you know, they're in some sense they have limited choices, not unlike high school, right? You might get an elective here and there, but these are the classes you take and this is sort of the path you take. And in a British boarding school, you then take you know, your exams at the end, and they tell you, are you going to college or not, and sort of what your options are and where you can go. So it's a little bit different here. Um, but I know with my own students, you know, we, we know how to go to school when we're in school, and we know what to do. And when all of a sudden, and, and, and so we're good when the path is linear. I'm going to go to high school, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to apply to college, I'm going to get into college, I'm going to take the right courses, I'm going to do well, I'm going to take my LSATs, I'm going to go to law school, I'm going to become a lawyer. And that's an incredibly linear path, right? And I think that the appeal, the seduction of that is I'm going to do all of the right things, and then everything will be okay. Not even that everything will be great, and I'll be rich and famous, and all of that. It's that I'll be okay. Like, that sort of is the baseline underlying concern And and I think that's legitimate, right? Like, I want to be okay. you want to be okay. That makes perfect sense. But one of the things that we know, and people older in the audience can back me on this, it doesn't work that way. You can have the best plan and the best path and do all of the right things and bad things happen, or you're not happy, or it doesn't work out, or you don't get into law school, or you get in and, you know, whatever, whatever that is. And I think that one of the hardest things about having a choice is the fear of making the wrong choice. And sometimes there's a wrong choice, right? Should I murder this person or not? There's a right choice and a wrong choice there for the most part.
1: If I'm acting for Draco, in, <laughs> for that Draco, that was a real right? choice he had to make. But if
0: I'm acting in self defense, there's not necessarily that same right choice or wrong choice. But I think for, you know, even for the students at Hogwarts, it's like, you know, you, you, there's just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And because, because it's scary to think about making the wrong choice, I think the good news about that is there's usually not a right choice, there's usually a choice. And I can do this, and I can, or I could do that. And if I do this and it doesn't work out, that still doesn't mean I made the wrong choice. It just meant things were different than I thought they were going to be. And then I get to make another choice and another choice. And that's actually really optimistic and really freeing, but it's terrifying. And most of us, even when we know that, that doesn't feel right at this sort of visceral level. We just tell me what to do, and I'll do it, and everything will be fine. It's scary.
1: Yeah, it's um, as someone told me when I was trying to make a decision once, make a decision and then make it the right one. And it was no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) But they were saying, uh, yes, yes, yes. Make a decision and then whatever happens, like make it the right decision, make it, um, you know, you'll keep going and you can make more of it.
0: Um, And I think where our minds go is if I make a decision and then I didn't like it, my assumption is that if I had made the other decision, it would have had a different and a better outcome. No guarantee, right? Right. Yeah. You don't
1: actually know. Right. Don't know. Um, and it, I know that you said something that makes, it seems to make it easier for Harry to be, he's very decisive most mm-hmm. of the time. And um, we talked about in a previous conversation how like he has a really pretty clear sense of his own values and he has a support system and lots mm-hmm. of friends. So it sounds like those are some things that can help people kind of have more clarity when they're making decisions? Does that?
0: I think I think it sort of depends who your friends are, but I think you can ha- I think you can ha- can help you have more clarity. It can certainly help you feel more confident in your decision, but I think even more important importantly, it can help you feel supported in your decision. Right? So I can support your decision. And then, still, and then be there to support you if things didn't work out the way you wanted or if ultimately you decided it was not a good decision or not a, a decision you wish you hadn't made, right? That having that kind of support network, I think, is critical in allowing us to take risks because we know there's a bit of a safety net there if we fail or if we fall.
1: I think something, speaking of like safety nets and wanting certainty and safety in life, um, I think one of the things that draws people to the Harry Potter books is though all of the evidence suggests that Hogwarts is not a safe place at all. There are like giant snakes, trolls, and trolls, and three-headed dogs. And like, it's, and Quidditch is an incredibly dangerous and violent sport. People feel really safe at Hogwarts. And um, Harry's told in the first book that there's like no safer place than Hogwarts and that Dumbledore is this great wizard. He's the only wizard that the evil Voldemort has ever been afraid of. And so everyone is safe at Hogwarts. They have Dumbledore to protect them. I mean, they have magical feasts for every day. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of isolated in this beautiful landscape. And, um, I heard in, there's a great podcast called Harry Potter and the sacred text. And, um, do you want, do you listen, Mike? Okay. Okay. <laughs> cool. I'm sorry for calling you out, but I saw the nod. Um, and, in one of the episodes, the host, uh, Casper Turkile said that psychologists have reported that when they ask children to choose a safe place to picture in their minds when they're in distress, a lot of kids choose Hogwarts. Um, and I can relate to that. Like, when I was 10, um, I remember just at different times when I felt unsafe, whether it was, you know, I remember on nine 11, like pulling out Harry Potter that night when I felt like the world was like, you know, I was 10 and the world was falling apart that felt like that. Um, or even if I was just nervous about like a dance recital, you know, I'd be, I'd be like, I'll, I'll be safe at Hogwarts, you know? Um, and I think Hogwarts, it gives you this sense of safety and also inspiration to be brave. Right. Um, so I'm I'm curious to think to talk about like, you know, those two feelings of of safety, but also that uh, room to take risk mm-hmm. to grow. Um, what are some of the components in our real lives that that we need? I know, like you and I talked about, kind of you know the perception of safety right. and magic and resilience and all of that.
0: Well, I think I think one of the things that Hogwarts offers so most children when they have to choose a character to identify with they're choosing Harry they're choosing Ron they're choosing Hermione or Luna or Neville there's this whole host of characters from three of the four houses that most kids are identifying with by the time they've gotten to college half of them are choosing Slytherin because it's way cooler to be a Slytherin right sort of you get on your leather jacket and Slick your hair back like it's the 1950s and you know you're good to go. But 10-year-olds, 10-year-olds know that Draco's not the character they want to identify with. They know that Slytherin's not the house that they want to be in. But I think what happens is I think when we read Harry Potter, especially as children, or imagine reading it as children, so one of the things that Hogwarts provides, especially in the early books, right, there's no, there's we we clearly see that there are economic differences in Hogwarts, but everyone has a bed, and everyone has these like big fluffy pillows, and everyone gets these meals. And we see, the, we see the socioeconomic differences by whose robes are hand-me-down and whose aren't. But there is a level of basic needs being met, right? So Maslow will talk about the hierarchy of needs and that you have to have your basic needs met in order to get to these higher order needs. And the basic needs are food, clothing, shelter, safety. And at least until the troll comes into the bathroom when Voldemort comes into the castle, it's really safe, right? It's safe. It's secure. All of those needs are met. And we know that when those needs are met, we can start worrying about higher, or, higher order needs. So we can talk about belongingness needs and where do I belong? Well, Hogwarts takes care of that too. You're, you're a Ravenclaw. Done. You belong, you belong there. You have this. And actually
1: a Hufflepuff. Sorry. <laughs>
0: or a Hufflepuff, sweater. right. Um, And so once I've done that, then I can start thinking about self-esteem and self-actualization and things like that. But I can't take risks unless my basic needs are met. And Hogwarts promises that the basic needs are met. And so I think when we think about what feels safe about that, if I can imagine myself at Hogwarts, then I can start working on esteem needs, and I can start working on self-actualization and things like that. And I can kind of jump up a little higher in the hierarchy than I might be in my actual life and be able to start thinking about those things. And of course, it's magical, right? I, I was telling you when we talked, I was the kid who was like tapping in my closet because I was sure there had to be some secret passage somewhere, hadn't found it yet, but was still always working looking for on maps. That.
1: Every time I saw like a <laughs> yellowed, you know, piece of paper somewhere in the house, I was like, this is the map. <laughs>
0: had to be, right? So, So that provides a whole other level of safety. And I think one of the things that we know, and a lot of kids start reading Harry Potter at the age that Harry is when he starts. And so students talk about, people talk about growing up with Harry. And as, as he gets into adolescence is when things start to get more dangerous, right? And so they kind of hit those milestones at the same time. But even though at the end, bad things happen, and even at the end, good characters die, including some of the characters that we're pretty attached to, in the, really good wins out in the end. And most of our main characters are surviving and thriving and kind of live happily ever after, right? And so I think that when we think about the safety piece, Hogwarts promises all of that. And it starts to get us into, by book four, sometimes bad things happen. And that can even hit us personally. But in the end, we're all going to be OK. right? And it's a, isn't that, wouldn't that be great?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and like you said, Harry kind of gets to move to those next level needs. And he has some really good, uh, adult figures and peer figures who are there to kind of help him we talked about like cognitive restructuring Mm -hmm. (laughs) so when he starts to lapse into magical thinking or um cognitive distortions like catastrophizing you know um he has Dumbledore he has Lupin he has Hermione he has Hermione even Hagrid I think gives some really good advice um and so I wanted to talk a little bit about you know Harry comes from a super abusive background, and he has trauma from the time he's a baby. He right. witnesses his parents get murdered, and then he, Voldemort attempts to kill him, right? And then he gets put into this super abusive home, um, but he's pretty resilient. But there are times when he is struggling with things that become really powerful symbols, I think, for things that we struggle with in the non-magical world, right? So there are Dementors that J.K. Rowling has talked about being these creatures that could suck your soul out. So. They really, um, I think people identify when they have anxiety, panic attacks, depression, Mm -hmm. like the Dementor is this physical symbol for your soul being sucked out for feeling hopeless, Mm -hmm. even for feeling overcome with panic. Um, and there's also these creatures called bog arts that, um, Professor Lupin brings into the defense against the dark arts class. A bog art takes the shape of whatever you fear the most. Um, and so, Lupin I think that like the third book is really my favorite I don't know I feel like that's kind of a common thing and some of that I think is this figure of Lupin who's a really kind intelligent um, professor and figure who really helps Harry kind of work through some of these um, distortions that he has so I mean in the real world like most of us wouldn't say I believe in magic but we do take part in a lot of magical thinking like if I just worry about this thing then it won't actually happen. Right. Or I don't want to jinx myself by saying the podcast show is going to go really well, right? I will just keep saying. <laughs> right. We're not going to say that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, and Lupin is one of those characters who helps Harry catch some of that. Um,
0: and one of the things he does specifically with the Bogarts is he teaches the students, and Neville is one of the first students who he brings up to face off against the Bogart. And Neville is arguably this sort of, you know, bumbling, awkward, clumsy... No one knows how he got into Gryffindor or why he got in there, but in book seven, you understand why. Um, and so he brings Neville out, and Neville is, Neville is petrified, and he believes he's going to fail, right? Lupin is an excellent professor. He's setting students up for success. He's not going to let Neville have this public failure experience, which is actually a much more common pedagogical strategy at Hogwarts, right? So the, well, we could talk about that another time. But um, So he, bring, he brings Lupin up. And he really sort of coaches him through. So, what happens with the bogart? The bogart comes out of the cupboard. It takes the shape of the thing you're most afraid of. And the way that you defeat the bogart is you imagine it as something else. You change. You take the thing you are most afraid of, and you turn it into something that you know that you can overcome. That is laughable. That is amusing. That is no longer no longer has the power over you. So, right. So for Neville, and, and Lupin says to him, "What are you most afraid of?" And he says, Professor Snape, who has arguably really tortured and bullied Neville since he's been there. And, and Lupin coaches him. And he says, I want you to imagine. He said, think of your grandmother. And he says, no, I'm afraid of my grandmother, too. And Lupin says to him, no, I want you to picture your grandmother's clothing on Professor Snape. right? So what, what we did before you all got here is we pictured you all in your underwear. Mm-hmm. Because that is what you do when you take this thing that you're afraid of, this intimidating audience, and you, so you're not actually all just sitting in your underwear for people listening at home, they all have their clothes on. But if we, but when we do that, right? So I haven't changed the reality, I've changed my perception of it. I've changed how I think about it. And I've taken something that was scary and I found a way to manage it by changing my perception of it. And so we see that really clearly with the Bogart. And it, what it really sort of reminds us all is that I can't always change my reality. But I can change my perception of it. And I can change my relationship with it. And you know, some, that works for some things better than others. right? We talked about this, that I can walk into a work situation and say, I'm not going to let sexism and racism and homophobia bother me. But if those structural inequities are in place, There's only so much I can do to think my way out of that. But I can not internalize those messages. I can think about what my options are. I can talk to human resources. I can go on the job market. I can do these other things in my life to keep myself safe and and feel better about the situation. right? And that's that's the magical thinking piece. It works for us both ways.
1: Yeah, and Lupin also does something really powerful for Harry, which is that Harry um, goes into that class, and he's feeling really humiliated and kind of ashamed because when the Dementors come, these, dement, these you know, uh, terrible Dementor creatures come on the train when they're all going to Hogwarts, like he is the only kid who passes out. Like he can't handle these things. And he's like, wow, I'm so weak. And he feels so bad about himself. And, and so he's got this narrative in his head, this mm-hmm. story about himself in his head and his abilities, which is that I'm weak. And Lupin says, no, you actually experienced really terrible trauma in your life and the, the dementors are bringing that back up for you. You're not weak, you're strong, um, and you're brave, you know, and he gives him a new story about himself and his abilities. And then he helps him learn how to, um, conjure a Patronus, right? right? And in order to
0: conjure a Patronus, you have to internally conjure up a memory that is powerful and happy and makes you feel safe. So it's not the words of the charm that work. It's the internal shift of being able to put a barrier between yourself and this thing that is attacking you, this thing that is scaring you.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of good, I mean, methods that people use in therapy that we see um, adults guiding Harry towards. There's, you know... um, well, they're using laughter with the bogart, mm-hmm. which I think is big too, just like having a sense of humor um, and then reframing the way you think about yourself and your abilities and using visualization, right? To bring Absolutely. yourself out of that moment. And even Hagrid, I remember the quote that always stuck with me the most when I read it. I think I was nine when the fourth one came out. Um And, you know, I was always like a little worrier. And at one point in the fourth book, Hagrid says to Harry, it's looking like things are getting dark, like the evil wizards are coming back. Voldemort has a body again. The evil wizards are coming back. (laughs) Bad things are happening. It's not looking good. But Hagrid says to him, what's coming will come and we'll just have to meet it when it does. And I used to like say that to myself Mm -hmm. as a little nine-year-old because, I mean he has this kind of um acceptance this mindful acceptance like stay in the present we don't know what's going to happen right. we can't control everything but we're going to meet it when right. it comes and when we when
0: we work with people in therapy on anxiety in particular we'll talk, we'll ask people about worry and we'll say well what's the likelihood that this bad thing is going to happen and it's either going to happen or it's not right so if it's going to happen i don't have to worry cuz it's going to happen and if it's not going to happen, I don't have to worry. Right? So, but, wh- but worry feels like it's keeping the bad things at bay. And so it's this kind of internal illusion that we have, not a good one, where worrying feels productive. We think we're doing something by worrying. And actually, it's, right, it's not problem solving. It's not the same thing. Problem solving will do something if you've got a problem in front of you. Worry will not. But it's that illusion. And again, if we, sort of, if we unpack it, we can say, well, it's not going to change anything one way or the other. People don't like it when we say that because the worrying feels so good. Because most of the time when I worry, the bad thing doesn't happen, right? So I've been reinforced for worrying. As long as I worry, everything will be fine, right? And so that's the that's that's the bad magic that we're yeah, all dealing with, right? That's the with, magical right?
1: thinking that we do that is right. not very helpful, exactly. right? Um, yeah, and I think so. Harry is like we said he, he is traumatized. He suffered abuse, but he is pretty resilient. What are some of the factors? Because like you said in a previous conversation we had that, you know, we can't expect every child who right. comes from such a terrible, terribly abusive background um, to, to achieve things in the way that Harry does, right? But what are some of the factors that go into that?
0: Right, so we know that lots of kids in really horrible, abusive, neglectful situations, um, th- those things have an impact, right? Those things can have a lasting impact. Um, the good news is, is that what a lot of the research tells us is that when those situations change, change, so do the outcomes. So even kids who have been in really problematic situations for a long time, if their situation changes as children or sometimes even just when they sort of grow out of it and they're sort of now adults and they, can, they have the opportunity and some options to make some different choices and find some different situations with different kinds of people, they can really self-write. But there's also there's been, there's been a lot of research on resilient children and the idea that um, sometimes these kids, for reasons that we cannot see and we cannot understand, really just somehow manage to hang in there and come out of it, not unscathed, but really in a different kind of way than we might expect from all of the things that they're going through. And one of of the markers for resilience is for children having someone in their life. Sometimes it's a long-term kind of connection, but it could also be something very short-term. A person, an older person, an adult, some respected figure who is very clear that they love them, they value them, they have positive feelings toward them. So that could be an aunt who they see regularly, that could be the third grade teacher, that could be the crossing guard who's like, you know what, you're my favorite kid, you're always the one who, you know, whatever it is. And those messages are really impactful. And some children, when they get them, are able to really hold on to them and internalize them and use that as a buffer, that they know they're valuable, they know they're safe. In Harry Potter, one of the, in Harry Potter gets the magical thing, right? So Voldemort comes in to kill him, he kills his parents instead, and what we find out through the course of the book is that his mother's love has had this protective factor, right? So for real children in real situations who lose parents that young, that's not necessarily enough of a buffer so harry has this magical piece of it that kind of sustains him we know there's temperamental things too that so that that make it easier for kids to be resilient like one of the things we know is that you know harry feels like an outsider in his in his in the dursleys in the family that he lives with And good news and bad news about that, right? It doesn't feel good to feel like an outsider. But there's something really really powerful for Harry about knowing that I'm not like them. These are horrible people. And they're telling me I'm different from them. And that actually gives him something to hold on to that's really powerful. Once he gets to Hogwarts, he has these figures, especially these adult figures, like Dumbledore, like Lupin, who really who like serious right who give him this thing that's really important that tell him that he's valuable that he's worthy that he's strong that he's courageous and that he's resilient and he's able to internalize those things and move forward
1: and i think one of the things that's powerful about reading a book like harry potter when you're young but really anytime is like you know for kids who are identifying with harry Hogwarts is almost like this island of mis- misfit toys. Like in the in our world, these people would be considered freaks, right? That's what Vernon uh, Dursley and Petunia Dursley call them. Um, they would be seen as abnormal, you know. Um, but at Hogwarts, like what's abnormal is normal. What's weird is celebrated. Um, and so if you're identifying with Harry, if you feel different or abnormal, you know, um, or if you're struggling with some of the things that Harry's struggling with, you can put yourself kind of into his shoes and even kind of visualize these characters like Hagrid or Dumbledore or Lupin kind of taking you under their wing and saying these same messages to you. And I feel like that's partially also why kids kind of um, really gravitate to it.
0: I think so. I mean, I think it it really speaks to people at that age. But I remember, I mean, I was an adult when the books came out. I remember when the seventh book came out, my son was probably two or three. Um, It came out in the summer. We were at the community pool, and everybody had the book. Right from like eight-year-olds through senior citizens, it was great. The lifeguards would like run to get off duty so they could go read the book, and the parents are trading off who's watching the kids so they could read the book. Right. So it had it's it's written for and about this young audience, but it so clearly has broader appeal because all of those themes resonate with us all the time.
1: Because it never ends, it right? Never, the choices and the growing. <laughs> right. Um. So I'm, I want to talk about, we've talked a bit about the internal struggle, um, and you know, Harry internalizes also like this struggle of, am I going to do the right thing or am I going to do the wrong Mm. thing? You know, am I, am I going to get pulled over to the dark side? I mean, we never really think he is, but there's that internal struggle of good versus evil, but there's also the very external powerful Mm. struggle of good versus evil, um, and something that was really fascinating to me in this book, The Psychology of Harry Potter, is there's a lot of talk about what creates the conditions for people to um, disobey mm-hmm. illegitimate, coercive, abusive power, which I think is a very timely thing to talk about <laughs> um, because- what do, you, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. No, n- n- no, not no. much. Um, because there are students who, you know, when they're 15, they or, or even younger ones. Once Voldemort is like coming back and Dumbledore gets kicked out of the school, they form Dumbledore's army. And you're, you said you're wearing your Dolores Umbridge jacket. I am wearing my right? Dolores Umbridge jacket. Dolores Umbridge is a horrifically abusive uh, figure of authority. And these some of the kids are like, all right, we're going to figure out how to disobey her. While other kids might be a little bit more like, that's the authority figure I have to obey. So um, you know, there's that the famous Milgram experiment where um, participants were asked to administer shocks to a person, um, and so there was there were two people who were in on it. There was someone in a white coat who was saying, "Okay, administer this shock." Okay, next level. The person receiving the shocks, they weren't really being shocked, but they were beginning to cry out in pain as they were getting ramped up. And I think in the book it says like 62% of people like administering that, yeah. the shocks who didn't know that it was fake kept going until they hit like there was one button that was just like an X and like the person would grow, fall silent, like they, and they would keep hitting the button because the white coat was telling them the study must continue, go on, and they would do it. So what do we see in Harry Potter about what are what are the factors that lead people to to feel strong enough to to notice, Okay, this is illegitimate authority. I should not obey this and I'm not going to. I mean, I think one of the things
0: that we see in Harry Potter more clearly in some characters than others is that it is a challenge to resist authority. And it's a challenge for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's just that the person in the white coat is telling you what to do. But if you've ever gone to the doctor and they give you medicine and someone's like, what's it for? And you're like, I don't know. Right? You're taking the medicine because you trust the person in authority that it's going to help you. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to do that. Of course, now, now that we have the internet, we all go home and Google it to see what's going on. right? But, 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 at, but at the very least, we're putting our trust in people and not necessarily asking lots of questions. Why should I be doing this? Is this important? Is this a good thing to be doing? So that's some of it. Sometimes it's just because someone's got the white coat on. But one of the things that we see in Harry Potter is that people in authority can rule in different ways, right? So Dumbledore has authority, but he's got, this, he's got this sort of benevolent authority. We think it's earned. We think he deserves to be the headmaster. And so when he tells us to do something, he's got some credibility. When Dolores Umbridge comes in, she's the headmaster. She's got, well, it's the pink coat, but she's got the white coat, right? And, but, it, but they're afraid of her. Most of them are afraid of her. And so when they're when they're ratting out their friends, when they're doing things that they don't want to be doing it doing, they do it because they're afraid, not necessarily because she is just the authority figure, but because they're aware of what people in authority can do when we go against them. And, and she makes that very clear. Threats there, and punishments. Threats right? and punishments, right? But there are also a handful of students who have aligned themselves with her, right? And so they're doing things. You know they're they're a little bit afraid of what will happen, but they also know that if they do what she wants and they actively do what she wants, not just sort of passively obey, but if they go out and sort of rout out other students, and I think she's she's got a, um, the, the, the inquis- like a Inqui- it's like the Inquisitor's yes. squad or something like that, right? Where they can join this and then they get power by association. So sometimes we see people obeying because it's a way into power not necessarily earned power, not necessarily deserved, but a way into power nonetheless. And so one of the things that we see in Harry Potter is we see them start to resist, right? And so what's involved in resistance? And one of the things that's involved when people want to resist people in authority, when they want to resist, what was the term you used? Sort of illegitimate authority, right? Is that having a clear sense of what we believe to be right and what we believe to be true can help. If I'm not sure what I think, and I don't understand the situation, and someone says, press the button, I'm going to press the button. But if I walk into that situation believing that I am a person who, does, who takes care of other people, and who is kind to other people, and who doesn't inflict damage, and who can stand up for people, I'm less likely to press that button. And even if 62%, or whatever the number was, if people were pressing it, that means that 38% were not. So it's not this all or nothing. And we know that some people, and it's easy to say, well, you know, I'd, I'd be in the thirty eight percent. I would never do that, right? Um, and we all think that. But actually only thirty eight percent of us are correct when we say that. Um, so so it's really not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of who's the good person and who's not. It's a matter of and it's not even a matter of who's strong and who's weak. It's who has the conviction, who has the awareness, who can sort of look at this from all sides and see that they have a choice, right, going back to the choice piece of it. So sometimes it's sort of I've thought a little bit about what I need to do and what I'll do in this situation. So I have my own conviction. I have my own beliefs. But I also have a plan. If someone tries to do this, here's what I'm going to do. That way, in that moment when bad things happen, when I'm adrenalized, when I'm afraid, I don't have to start thinking, well, what can I do and what are my options? I already have a plan in place. So one of the things that happens with Dumbledore's army is they're putting a plan in place. They're figuring out their strategies. They're figuring out their options so that when they need to use them, They're going to be ready to do that. And, of course, they have a whole social support system. They're not the only one resisting. It's hard to be the only one resisting. It's much easier to resist if I can call myself Dumbledore's Army than if I'm one of a handful of students who are fighting back against the Inquisitor squad, right? So even the labeling becomes important.
1: Yeah, I think the social aspect is really important. In the um, study, they found that uh, participants who were closer to the authority figure Um, were more likely to keep pressing the button. But if they were farther from the authority figure and closer to the victim, they were less likely to keep pressing the button. And also, if they had developed some sort of rapport with the victim beforehand, if they had kind of, like, been friendly and had some interactions, they were less likely to press the button. Um, And social isolation has a real role in people feeling, like more inclined to follow authority like that, I think. And in the books, we see that Ginny Weasley in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, she falls under the the power of Tom Riddle, the memory of Voldemort. And she starts, um, she becomes kind of, you know, uh, darkly enchanted by him and starts doing these terrible things. But when that happens, it's because she's feeling really isolated and alone. And she starts to find some solace in this diary that begins to write back to her and say like, yeah, you know, you're great. They all suck. (laughs) Listen to me. Come down to the basement,
0: right? I mean, that's sort of the next thing that happens there is that it's easy once, am I still on? Am I still on? That it's easy once he's gotten her alone. Now I can kind of get her to do what I want. Right. And we see that, we certainly see that today, you know, that uh, people who are, Uh, school shooters people who are joining these sort of white supremacy reactionary groups these are people who feel lonely and isolated and someone has given them something to hold on to someone has made them feel welcome and valued and included in a way that they were not getting for whatever reason from their situation before
1: and that kind of harkens back to like those Slytherins that get sorted into Slytherin house when they're 11 years old it's like you know they're being told Okay, you're in the evil house. And um so 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 much for having like convictions about valuing, you know. Right. And even even if that doesn't feel
0: true to them, even if that's not what they want, they're in a lose lose. So if they reject their Slytherin identity, then the Slytherins reject them. But everyone else is already rejecting them anyway by virtue of that house sorting. So they really they have a choice to
1: be isolated or they have a choice to really join, right? And so they join for the yeah. most part. And the power of the group is mm-hmm. so strong, right? I mean, and that's part of that's a huge part of Harry's power. I think one of the coolest things about the books is that you see by the end like it really is it's harry is the hero but lots of characters sacrifice a lot like he doesn't get i mean he would be dead by the end of the first book if hermione was not there we could rename all the books after what hermione did yes (laughs) um and uh and i think that's just it, it speaks really well to like you are never completely alone. You can't do anything alone, you know? Um, and by the end of the books, we see that. Like, even though Harry's the one that walks into the forest to sacrifice himself for Voldemort, I mean, lots of characters died and sacrificed their lives as well, so... Right, and, and he he's the labeled character, right? They,
0: you know, in some sense, uh, they're all, you know, they, they're, they're sort of fighting for him as much as they're fighting for everything else. Um, and then we see at the end with Neville, so when they think Harry's dead... You know, Neville says it doesn't matter that he's dead. Like, we didn't actually do this for Harry. We're doing this for everyone, right? And it becomes, you know, the what Neville brings to the table in that, I think, is a real sense of... Uh, where heroes come from unexpected places. We expect Harry to be the hero. He's groomed to be the hero. He gets lots of support and lots of resources along the way for doing that. But he's actually not the only hero in this story. And it, and it really, I think, I think, part of the power of the series is if I'm not Harry, right? and I wasn't Harry growing up. Um, I was sort of Hermione without the popular friends part. right? Um, <laughs> other people in the room, yes? Um, is that is that it's going to be okay anyway? That you can that you could find your, your support system. It doesn't have to be the most popular, the most famous, getting all the resources, getting all the attention. That's absolutely not Neville. And then look what Neville does at the end, right?
1: Yeah, he kills the snake. He, he kills making, the snake.
0: Right? In case you didn't
1: read that, he kills. That's the snake. really important. <laughs> um, so, and, and I think you know, in addition to seeing these external symbols for good versus evil, we do see the characters grappling with their internal good versus evil. And I think that's also something that draws people to the books is like, because we all can relate to feeling like I'm not all good. I'm not hopefully all bad, you know, like, but I think that's one place where sometimes, you know, you talked about relating to Hermione. I know like a lot of women, I think, read the book and are like, I'm shy and bookish. And I liked school and was good at school, but was kind of socially awkward. I am Hermione. She's my (laughs) hero, you know, but there's something a little, um, one thing that I think is a little problematic is like, she is so perfect as a student and we see how it hurts her, but she's a hundred, you know, 100% across the board, Mm -hmm. for the most part, there's like some small um, exceptions, divination. I think she gets, you know, a slightly lower mark on one of her defense against the dark arts exams. Um, But like, I think people can start to be like, oh, but I'm not as perfect as Hermione, you know, and you and I kind of talked about this idea of self complexity, which I think is really important so I was wondering if you could talk about that sure
0: so i think so the idea of self complexity is i have all of us have as multiple aspects of ourselves multiple roles multiple strengths and whether we acknowledge them this is sort of the perception piece again the importance is whether we acknowledge them so hermione has all of these characteristics but she thinks of herself as the smart girl and that is sort of the identity that she holds on to that's great until something happens and and something happens that challenges that identity And then if if all I have, if the only way I see myself is the smart girl, and then I don't get a a top score in my divination exam, I'm devastated because I have nothing else to fall back on. And of course I have other things to fall back on, but I'm not seeing them and I'm not paying attention to them and I don't know that they're there. And so I think one of the things um, we can sort of look at the characters, the characters who are more resilient also have more self-complexity. They can they can identify multiple strengths, multiple labels. So I might be the smart girl, or I might not be the smart girl, but I'm also a mother, and I'm a daughter, and I'm a colleague, and I'm a friend, and I, I'm freakishly good at laser tag, and I have all of these other kinds of pieces about me that I then get to rely on. So when something happens at work and I have a bad day at work, I get to go, yeah, but I have all these other things. If my entire identity is about being a professor, and then, you know, my boss comes and tells me I'm doing a terrible job, I'm devastated. If, if that's not the only thing that's important to me and my boss comes and, tells me, and does, tells me I'm doing a terrible job, I'm upset, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm concerned, but it's not quite as devastating because those other aspects of myself that I can see and I can identify protect me when bad things happen. And I think one of the characters where we see that is Luna. Right, So Luna has this sense of herself in multiple capacities that no one else really recognizes until maybe book, where does she really kind of kick in? Book
1: five yeah, is when five she sort of six. becomes
0: a more, a more viable character. And part of what protects Luna is she absolutely 100% knows who she is. She does not need to prove it to anyone. She does not care if you like her or not. And she has very clear relationships, not just with friends, who are outside of her house primarily, but with family, but with creatures, but with ghosts, right everyone gets Luna's probably the character who actually it's the hardest to find sort of the good and evil, like but she's good and interesting and nuanced and, and fun ways. she's not bland she's not you know she's not little Miss Mary Sunshine. She does all of these incredibly strong and powerful things because she has all these aspects of self to rely on.:
1: Yeah, I love Luna. love Luna I love Luna. Um, so speaking of some awesome characters, since, again, this is a show about growing up, who would you say um, is a very good example from the books of someone who truly grows up by the end? I, I, think, I, I think there's
0: so many good examples, but I think the best role model for growing up is Neville, I, right? Love I love Neville. love Neville.
1: And what a glow up for the actor who played <laughs> Neville, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, I think, I mean, we watch Harry grow up, but we know from the beginning it's Harry Potter and fill in the blank. We, we know Harry's going to be fine. We know he's the hero. We know he's going to win in the end. They're not killing him off anywhere, even though they kind of do. But then he comes back. Right. But, the, you know, Neville we see from the get go. We see Neville in book one and Neville is not who we want to be. Nobody, I mean, people might feel like they're Neville, but no one goes, I want to be Neville. And they want to, like, oh, he's going to be a Hufflepuff. You right. know it. Right. He's going to be a Hufflepuff, which sounds like it should be a great thing, and it is a great thing, but it's like being the sparrows in the reading group. Like, no one wants to be the sparrows. You want to be the robin, or you want to be the blue jay. Like, everyone knows the sparrow is the, like the less appealing reading group to be in, right? And that's the sort of lore of Hufflepuff. And even when we have Cedric Diggory in book four, who is one of the characters who is in the Goblet of Fire and who's a competitor and he's strong and he's popular, he dies. And he's the only like, really interesting Hufflepuff, and they kill him off in book four, and that's kind of the end of it, right? So there's no incentive to be a Hufflepuff. And Neville is convinced he's a Hufflepuff, not because he looks at himself and values loyalty and kindness, he, no, because he's not a Gryffindor. He does not, he's not brave, he's not smart, he's not evil. So Hufflepuff is sort of the default, and the hat's like, yeah, no, you're a Gryffindor. And so one of the things we see with Neville is without, I mean, he has friends and, you know, Harry is his friend and Hermione and Luna, he has, he has friends, but, you know, even they sort of dismiss him and kind of make fun of him and things like that. And yet, in spite of all of that, Neville figures out who he, who he is from the beginning before he has figured out who he is he stands up to hermione who is probably we were talking about this the person who is nicest to him throughout and he still challenges her to do the right thing right and so we see this over and over in the book and i and i think i think i think he's the best role model because it's such a reminder to those of us who were awkward and bumbling and people made fun of that these fantastic things can happen because of the work you do and the development and the experiences you have, and not because anyone necessarily thinks it's going to happen. But by the, by the seventh book, he is spectacular. And not just spectacular in terms of what we see. He knows he's spectacular. And he figured it out before everyone else did. And then he brought that to the table, right?
1: yeah it's going back to the idea of disobeying um he in the first book when he's 11 you know um he stands up to his friends and he um they're gonna you know harry ron and hermione are gonna sneak out of the common room and he's like you're gonna get us all in trouble again i'm not gonna let you do this of course hermione like puts a jinx on him and he (laughs) falls over and can't do a thing but then dumbledore um gives him some house points and says, it's one thing, you know, uh, to stand up to our enemies, but it's another thing to stand up to our friends. So, you know, there's this, a different kind of disobedience that he is able to do. That's really hard, especially when you're young and just want to be accepted and you don't have a lot of friends and he's very forgetful and he has like no self-confidence. And I know, I, I really love what you're saying about how he becomes this, this, uh, symbol for growth and, you know, you, you're not, always destined to be a certain way. And I think we see him work at
0: it, right? So in book four, there's these, at least in the movie, there's these scenes where you see him practicing dancing and it's sort of this like laughable, awkward scene and then he gets out on the floor and he's fantastic in a way that like Harry and, and Harry and Ron can like barely, you know, walk out on the dance floor without falling over and he's brilliant. And And his peers don't really get it, but we get it. Right, and so we can kind of see this we're happening, Neville.
1: right? Because we're Neville, right? We think we're Hermione, but we're, we're Neville. actually Neville. Yeah, yeah. So I want to do a little lightning round before I open up for questions. So you can all kind of let it percolate, and I just have a little quick lightning round for you. I which don't know what that. I, means, I know but I did I didn't prepare you. Out. So sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, it's just like this or that. Oh, okay. Like some quick kind of Harry Potter themed. You know, what would you choose? Right. Um. What Hogwarts house do you identify with? As a psychologist who believes in self-complexity, like we understand that, but if you had to choose?
0: I don't, so as a psychologist who believes in self-complexity, I am a Slytherin. Okay. And I have data to support this. There's actually one of the, one of the Hogwarts quizzes that are out there and there's like a thousand of them. We'll put you in different houses. And it's one of the few where it's harder to kind of give the right answer. If I want to be a Gryffindor, I know how to answer on Pottermore, and I can make myself a Gryffindor. And by the way, if it doesn't work the first time, you can put in a new email address and do it yes, over and over but again. I, but
1: I did that three times, and I got Hufflepuff every time. So I finally just Sometimes it knows that I'm right? a Hufflepuff, hence my yellow Hufflepuff sweater. So when,
0: when when this when this program sort of spit out the answer... The description that it gave sounded exactly like me. And it was, when people first meet you, they find you a little aloof and standoffish, and either they don't like you or some people think you don't like them. But when you when they get to know you, they find out that you are sort of courageous and connected and stand up for people. And I read this to a friend of mine, and he was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I thought about you when I first met you. So there's my answer. It might be because you
1: wear the Dolores Umbridge jacket. You know, it, like, it fits, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny about it, though, also is like, I, when I got the, Huff, the Hufflepuff result, I was like, I'm not good enough to be a Hufflepuff. Oh. Like, it wasn't that I judged the Hufflepuffs. I was like, they're, they're supposed to so be good. so good. Like, I couldn't possibly. So maybe, you know, like it's the a- aspirational, like, That's right. you know, you don't believe it, but maybe it helps you see it a little more. And you can get
0: there. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So if you could take one Hogwarts class, what class would you take?
0: It would be Defense Against the Dark Arts. Although I will say that is because my research is on self-defense and resistance. But the idea of being able to do that would be fantastic. Yes.
1: Um, What about the magical pet that you would bring to Hogwarts? Owl, cat, toad, perhaps a pygmy puff. I'm partial to the puffs myself. You know, I don't like rodents.
0: I'm allergic to cats and birds kind of freak me out. So if pygmy puff is an option, I'm going with pygmy puff. Yeah,
1: I'll take it. All right. Um, What spell or charm would you most want to learn? Oh, that's such a good question. I feel like Accio is really tempting because when you're in bed and you're like, I want that thing across the room, <laughs> you could just be like, Where's the remote? <laughs> yeah. You know, um,
0: does it does dissaporate? Um, yeah. Disapparating count? Yeah. It would be that. The idea yeah. of being able to get somewhere quickly.
1: Yes. That would be my okay. thing. Um, okay. What, what care? This is appropriate for like our campaign season that we're. What character would you most like to have a butterbeer with?
0: (laughs) That is so appropriate for our campaign season. Um, I'm I'm debating between sort of adult and child. I'm kind of going back and... Well, children
1: can have butterbeer. Oh, that's true. I'm going to say say Tonks. Oh, yeah. She'd be great. Right? Uh, Minerva Warren. Um, (laughs) Okay. Would you rather have an invisibility cloak... Or a flying broomstick, invisibility cloak. I knew you were going to say that. Uh, you're not even a question, professor. Like you could being in the room in and people. not knowing yeah. I was there. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, last one. This is. It's kind of. I think it's personal for people. But what? What's your
0: Patronus? So there's actually, so so I have not done the website. There is a test you can take to find this. And one of my students yes. right now is very upset because she keeps taking it. And her Patronus is a salmon. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what that means, and we don't know why we think it's so funny. But the entire class thinks that's hysterical. It's flopping around. It, 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 swimming upstream. You know, there's like a whole thing going on there. What would my Patronus be? I think it would, I, I can, can you have a gorilla? I think it might be a gorilla. Yeah. If okay. it's in your heart, you can have, I feel no, like why, a, I why feel, the gorilla? I have, I have always loved gorillas. I've always loved this sort of connection, um, and the humanity. Um, but I also love the sort of like smack you out of the way and go get the fruit so that both Could of those things have your gorilla sign? Oh, absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. And be best yeah. friends
1: with Robin Williams. R.I.P. I'm, I'm I'm mixed on Robin oh, Williams. Oh, okay. That's another, ca- another that's a whole other podcast <laughs> episode. Let's I just not stepped talk right about that. It. That's so awkward. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, thank you guys so much for being here for this conversation. Yes. I want to see now me. if anyone has any questions. Liz, I know you have like five. Why don't you come up and and say? No, you don't want to. <laughs> I want to hear your voice on the recording later. Okay. Oh, so you have all the questions. Well, I have
2: okay. <laughs> Should I address the I don't know. Okay, so um, this is from Rebecca Clark. Um, how many times have you read the series? And I think that's a both questions.
0: I have read, I've read the first four books more than I've read the rest of the series. I probably read the entire series, start to finish five times at this point. I've read the first four books you know, seven, eight, nine at this point. I got stuck on book five when it first came out. I did not like book five. And the reason I didn't like book five is I could not wrap my head around the fact, this was several years ago, I could not wrap my head around the fact that the entire wizarding world had worshiped Harry from, you know, age one until 14 or however old he is at that point. And then suddenly in the span of a summer turned on him because of the media. I have since come to understand that I was wrong about that. But that was actually my response in that when I first read it. And now I get it.
1: I read books one through... Th- this is a fun fact that I've used at work for, like, icebreakers and stuff. I've read the first three books. I read them 13 times before I turned 13. Because, again, I was, like, trying to be Hermione. So I was like, I can do this. Um, and then four through seven... I probably read four and five, like... Two times, three times, and then the last two I think I only read once.
0: Seven is worth a reread. I should, I it know. It really I, is. I, I
1: was planning to do that before yeah. this conversation and then I didn't because I'm not Hermione. So <laughs> <laughs> I have tips
2: for you on that Okay, good. Um, okay, my next question is, um, so I'm sure this has been done, but I don't know anything about this. Do you know anything about matching up or overlaying Hogwarts houses with like established personality tests like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram?
0: There is, and I'll, I'll get you the link for this for when you, um, if you have like a way to put it on there. There is a site that was developed by a psychologist, and they're collecting data, so when you go online and take these personality tests, they're using this data and sort of gathering the data. So you have to kind of click that, like, yes, you can have the data, and it will then tell you that. Um, having said that, so I have done this with my students before I, before I resorted to sorting them by cupcake. I actually used to give them these measures. I'd have them fill out. So I would have one that was about kind of intellectualism, one that was like a Machiavelli kind of thing, one that was about compassion, one that was about courage. And I would tell them that I had sorted them based on their scores. I actually sorted them not entirely randomly, but by like who I wanted in each house. And I told them it was based on their scores. But almost invariably, like most of these, like you kind of get an average on like a one to seven score. Most people on all four measures range somewhere between like 4.1 and 4.6. So it, it speaks to the self-complexity. We're actually all of these kinds of things. Every now and then someone would have a spike, which I sort of took as a, oh, you tried to be a Slytherin, right? But those tests are out there, and so there's a little bit of overlap with that.
1: And I feel like that also speaks to, like, most of us are pretty average and we don't want to say that. Like, there's a Kristen Neff's work on mm-hmm. self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Like, our soci- our culture puts a lot of emphasis on self-esteem and, like, you're special because of this. Right. But and the
0: this is you're special because you are better. You better. are good at this, which really means you are better at this than someone yeah, else. Yeah, it's is. all about yeah. being
1: above average. Right. But actually when you, like, and different cultures, people, like, will... Whatever that society values, people rate themselves as above average on that thing right. in that society. So if you're like in the U.S., people are like, I'm more confident than the average
2: person. Yeah, I'm more independent. Right. Oh, yeah.
1: But if, if the same test is administered in China, a lot of people might say, I'm more cooperative than the right. average person. Um, and so her work is all about like, it's not necessarily about being better than everyone. You should just have compassion for yourself because you're human and right. therefore deserving of love and all that. Anyway. Do you have?
2: And you addressed some of this when you talked about self um, complexities, mm-hmm. um, but I was hoping you could talk more uh, about some of the dichotomies and some of the other supporting characters. So we talked a little bit about Dumbledore, how he's viewed as this like sagacious, wise, good um, force in the wizarding world, but he has this like really questionable past um, when it comes to philosophy and his family. Mm-hmm. Then there's Snape, who's bad and vindictive and petty, um, especially with house points that always annoyed me as a kid, Um, yet ultimately like a hero in the story. Um, Others are James, who's revered yet arrogant.
0: Petunia. Don't get me started on James.
2: Who's abusive but jealous and um, immature and has like FOMO. Um, (laughs) That's (laughs) fear of missing out if you're over 30. (laughs) Uh, Can you discuss how these... Paradoxes not only enrich the story but sort of illuminate human nature?
0: I think that's such a good question. Oh <laughs> um, you know I, th- I think one of the, one of the things that I've, I find difficult about this series is that it's sort of clear who we're supposed to like and who we're not and then there's a little bit of a twist and at the end we're not really sure if we're supposed to like Snape or not but I think at the end we're still pretty sure we're supposed to like Dumbledore and I'm not sure we should right. So one of the things that we see is that There's kind of a clear good and evil, right? There's most of the good characters, and then the Slytherins, and then Voldemort, who's really evil. But when we think about it as good and bad instead of good and evil, it's a lot more complicated, right? Because again, I think Luna is probably the only character we can come up with who it's really hard to find something bad about her. Maybe Neville too. Um, But Luna's sort of a clearer and stronger character in that. right? But James and Ron, uh, James and Ron, Harry and Ron are really not nice to Hermione. In the beginning, and they're really not nice to the Slytherins. Um, even the Hufflepuffs are not nice to Harry when they're in the Goblet of Fire competition, and they've got the Potter stinks buttons. And you know, Cedric comes to Harry and says, "I asked them not to do it, but they're still doing it." Right? I like, guess it's not just the Hufflepuffs; it's everyone. But. Um, you know, so I so I think that I, I think that it's complicated, and I think that it's easy to say like these are the good people, and when we say these are the good people, we tend to ignore the things about them that are not so good, which we do in ourselves as well, right? If I think I'm a good person, and that sort of is you know that that's really who I am, and then those times when I'm not particularly nice are the exceptions to the rule, as a part as opposed to sometimes I'm nice and sometimes I'm not so nice, right? There's a um, there's a personal safety guy named Gavin De Becker who, were, he's the sort of, he runs personal safety when the Pope comes to visit. And he does it for presidential elections and stuff like that. And he's written a book called The Gift of Fear, which is really interesting. Not, not perfect, but interesting. But one of the things he talks about is that niceness is not a trait, that niceness is a behavior that we exhibit in social interaction to get what we want. And he says that descriptively. He doesn't say that judgmentally. But, you know, if I, if I am behaving nicely you know maybe it's because i feel good when i'm when i am behaving nicely and that makes other people feel good right i can behave nicely for that i'm behaving nicely to you all right now because i want you to like me and say nice things about me when you leave but if i'm a perpetrator i behave nicely to get someone to let me into their house or let me into their lives or let me into their social media or whatever it is right but and so what happens is when we find out that person's a perpetrator we're like how could that be true they were so nice as if that is this characteristic they bring as opposed to a behavior they're engaging in. And I think when we look at most of the characters in the book, like they're human and they're messy and they're complicated. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the bad thing is, what, is when we do what Harry does for most of the book to James. And it's like, my father's so great. And it's like, your father was a jerk. And your mother really could have done better. Like maybe she shouldn't have ended up with Snape, but I'm not sure James. like how about Lupin? Oh, Lupin? Like Lily and Lupin would yes. have been fantastic, right? But James has that like frat boy thing going on. He does, right? You know, and so and and in the end he becomes better and he does lots of good things, but you never see this moment where James is like Severus, I'm so sorry, I was such an asshole to you in, you know, in high school he just doesn't and we're sort of waiting for that moment but we can forget about it cuz he's Harry's dad and he's the good guy right so
1: i think that's so interesting cuz that's actually something that's come up in the podcast a lot is that being nice doesn't mean that you're a, a good person or you know being nice doesn't mean you have integrity it doesn't mean you do the right thing necessarily and especially for people i think like girls are socialized a lot to be mm-hmm. very nice and pleasing but then when push comes to shove are you going to be a person of integrity? And I, and
0: I think that's the difference, right? I think we have characters who clearly have integrity. Snape has integrity, even if he's not always nice. Lupin has integrity. Um, Hermione, I think, has integrity. Harry has integrity, but it gets challenged a little bit from time to time. I'm not sure Ron has much of anything, integrity <laughs> or otherwise. So we can argue about that if you want to. And it's
1: like, you know, disobeying is not necessarily inherently good, right? And being nice isn't necessarily inherently bad. But all these factors, like feed into it. And I I think also what you're saying about, you know, we're more quick to forgive people if we've already decided that they're good. And I think for ourselves, you know, maybe we think, oh, I'm good. And the bad things I do are an aberration. Or we could think I'm bad. And anything good that I do is like, it doesn't really matter all that much.
0: Well, and when kids are younger, they engage in this sort of all or nothing thinking, right? There are good people and bad people. And I remember my son was about probably fourth grade, when he had he had read the books when he was in second grade and got some of it and didn't get some of it, um, but when he was in fourth grade he read them again and he was he he couldn't wrap his head around Narcissa Malfoy, because she's bad she's a Slytherin she does all of these bad things arguably bad, and then at the end she chooses Draco over Voldemort. Not clear that Lucius his father would have made that same choice, but she does and so we you know I would drive him to school and we'd have the conversations like for weeks on end. Trying for him trying to wrap his head around that bad people can do good things and good people can do bad things and maybe it's more complicated than who's good and who's bad because he did not see that coming and then didn't know what to make of it.
1: Yeah, I love that the books bring us to that by the end of the series. Like your mind is kind of blown by like, what, Dumbledore and Snape? And yeah, (laughs) does anyone else have any other? Oh, yay. Oh, cool. Okay, so you can come up if you want or you can pass up your note card or you can just say it from your seat. It's your choice. Oh, <laughs> um, Mallory, do you wanna go? Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering um, if you guys would talk about the epilogue at all because I'm not Harry Potter, but I am unhappy that there is an epilogue. But you guys are talking about it so much as like Harry Potter being like this warm comfort mm. food for adolescents. And I mean more than that, but that's so much of it is growing up with Harry and like do we need that epilogue for it to be that comfort mm. food? I always wanted it to end with, like, everything being okay and
2: then
1: Harry's scar hurting again. I <laughs> <laughs> you
0: you wanted the next series.
1: Complexity. It's
0: and I don't know anybody who needs the epilogue. I think the epilogue is terrible, and I don't know why it's there. But one of the things, so there's, and I don't like it in the book. I like it even less in the movie. Um but one of the things that I don't like about it, and I think this is clear in the book, there's sort of a, a description, I haven't read the epilogue in a while, but there's a description in the book where like, he and Draco see each other and they're sort of still like glaring and angry. I'm like, oh, good, we've learned nothing from the Blood War, right? So it's now 25 years later and we still hate the Slytherins and Harry pays lip service to the idea that it's okay if you're a Slytherin, but really it's not. And we see that in Cursed Child, right? Where a whole other story, but it's clearly not okay, right? It's okay if you're a Slytherin, as long as you're not really a Slytherin and really become a Gryffindor, right? Everything will be fine. So I I don't think
1: we needed it, and I don't really know
0: why it's there.
1: I think in the short term it was kind of like when you're wrapped. When I was reading it for the first time, and I was one of those kids who like I started reading the books when I was eight. The last book came out when I was seventeen, so I did very much grow up with it. So I think the first time I read it, I was just like, I was so emotional. I was like, oh, and they're named after the kids are named after the people that died. (laughs) But then, yeah, you don't really need it. I I think that was a good answer. Um, Other questions? Yeah. I think the teachers would all be in jail. Like, <laughs> they're pretty abusive. You know, I, I mean,
0: maybe. And I don't know that that's a good thing, right? One of the things that we know with gifted and talented programs is that that's where the resources go. And, you know, not that we don't want to give resources to people in particular ways, but there's a limited pool of resources and we're siphoning off resources for a particular group of kids, and I will say this is someone who got some of those resources in elementary school, right? So this is this is not bitterness on my part, but but I th- but I think it's a problem. I also um, there's also a complete lack of there's no guidance counselors, there's no school therapists, right? I mean there's all kinds of things that we might see in an American school system, and I you know they've got some kind of guidance thing in you know in in the in the British boarding schools, but. Um, I think I think it would be different. However, I don't think the pedagogy would be different because I'm not sure the pedagogy that we see in Harry Potter is actually British boarding school pedagogy as much as it is sort of, you know, um like, you know, 18 1850s pedagogy, right? Like this this is an era where so cell phones were kind of coming around at the time that it was published, but certainly cell phones and computers and email were were established, and we see none of that technology in Harry Potter, and I think that's a deliberate choice, and I'm pretty sure the British boarding schools have those, right? So I think that there are choices that were made there um, that were very much about like a, like a sort of medieval kind of, you know, you know hearken back to those educational practices. Yeah,
1: OK, yeah. I'm just curious, um, for both of you, like how do you think the books will hold up over, over time? Mm-hmm. Are the middle still school students still reading them? I, you mm-hmm. know, I guess I realize I should repeat the question for the listeners. Um, <laughs> uh, the question was: How do we think the books will hold up over time, and our middle schoolers still reading them now?
0: So this is this is the fifth year that I've taught the psychology of Harry Potter, and I still have students who have not just grown up on the movies, but also grown up on the books. Although I have some variability in that. So some 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 you know people coming into college right now read the books, even though that they were. Uh, the books were all out before they were reading, probably or close to it, or just coming out when they were reading. Um, but some of them haven't read them. Some of them are kind of relying on the movies, which are holding up but i think i I think there's going to be a point I don't think they're going to go away entirely, but I'm wondering I'm going to hit a point where I offer this course and it doesn't have the same appeal because it's not really what they're reading anymore and I think we're I think we're going to see that. I do think one of the things that happens is that different as different generations discover um, the series. It is a series that gets kids reading who otherwise would not read. And some of my students in my class will tell me that they hate reading and they hated reading as kids, but they loved reading Harry Potter. So there is still something about it that's a pull, but I think it's going to wax and wane. I don't think it's
1: going to necessarily stay where it is. It's funny. Cause when you just said you've been teaching it for five years, like I graduated six years ago, so I just missed it. <laughs> and that's really disappointing. Um, but I think something that you mentioned about the last question about there being no technology is kind of interesting. I think that helps because I, I read something recently about how Gilmore Girls, which is kind of a similar thing where it was a pre... They have like beepers in some of the episodes, yeah. but they don't have cell phones. They're in Stars Hollow. Again, like a very safe place that people feel is safe and they imagine themselves being there um, with all these friendly, you know, people supporting them. And, and the reboot... Um, Kind of generated new interest, and so people are starting to watch it for the first time. It came out first, I guess, like right. you know, fifteen to twenty years ago. And um, someone commented that because there is no technology, it's not quite as dated as it would be if mm. there was more, like if there, if there were computers and cell phones and like all these things. That's it's a, a little really more good time. timeless, and I think yeah. Harry Potter might kind of fall into that too because they use quills and parchment. Right. They don't even use like reg- why can't they use paper and pens? Right. Well, and there's actually, there's, um, there's a
0: book chapter that was written that looks at technology and magic in Harry Potter. And it makes a, distinguish- a distinction between magic tech and tech magic. And so ma- I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to get them backwards. But magic tech is when I make the flying car. So there's an object that exists in the Muggle world and I make it magical somehow and this broomsticks would be that. And then there's objects that are tech magic, which is like the the all, which is this ball that glows red when Neville is forgetting something and that doesn't have a, a real world counterpart, right? And they sort of talk very specifically about what it would mean to have technology and what it doesn't. But one of the things that we see is that when we talk about Harry Potter now and we try to figure this out, we apply technology in particular ways. So my students today were talking about um, an article that they read called Harry Potter and the Metaphysics of Soul Splitting. And we were trying to figure out sort of, you know, soul and identity. And when Voldemort splits his soul, where is the I who is Voldemort and what does this mean? And all of that. And someone said it's like soul Wi-Fi. So the, you know, the, the different parts of the soul are in these different... And everyone's like, yes, that's what it's like. Yeah. There's these different parts of the soul that are in these different things, but they're still somehow connected. Because the part of his soul that is in the magic locket tries to kill Harry and Ron by dragging them into the lake and drowning. So that's not Voldemort, and that's not his identity. But somehow it is still connected to the I who is Voldemort in the body, right? So we get to still kind of pull those technological pieces in. But I think you're right. I think the fact that it's missing will speak to the longevity of the series in a way that it wouldn't if it weren't there.
1: Although I think something that you dive into into your class that's touched on in this book a little bit that we didn't really have time to do justice in this conversation is like um, some of the social and values and like, you know, it's a very heteronormative, uh, very traditional kind of place. And some of the there's a lot with race and gender and sexuality um, that. And J.K. Rowling has kind of tried to like rewrite it a little bit, uh, not a little bit, like a lot, um, retroactively to say Dumbledore was gay and all this stuff, but right. we don't actually see all the representation that, I don't know, I, I think... That could kind of date it a little bit as we move forward. Well, and it's interesting
0: because when my students talk about that, they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, I mean, that's sort of a new thing now. I'm like, no, in 1997, we still knew about gay and lesbian people and they could have been in the book. Like, we didn't invent them in 2015, right? So, but But it's missing, and it's missing in more obvious ways. And I think that the series being written now opportunities for inclusion would have rested somewhat differently, not entirely differently, but somewhat differently with the mainstream audience than they might have in 1997. I don't think she made that as a conscious choice. I think in a a heteronormative society, you don't necessarily think to write a gay character, because you're just not thinking about it, because everybody's straight and they all go to the Yule Ball together and everybody gets married, and that's the end of it, right? So I don't think it was a conscious choice on her part not to include them. Not to include more representation, but I think it speaks volumes about the fact that there's no one in the series who's not straight.
1: Yeah. Except right. Dumbledore.
0: Only we're not convinced, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, Fee? That's my sister. <laughs> um, so, okay, like, for example, as a kid, when I first read the books and, like, watched the movie, I saw, like, Draco, and I was like, oh, he's awful. There's nothing good about him and all that. And you kind of touched on this, but, like, especially because you read them as a kid. And the, like, and then rewatching movies, and I'm like, wow, Draco has a horrible home life, and has all this stuff that you really understand why he is, what he is, and you don't see it as a kid. So, is there any character like that who you had an opinion of when you first read it, like as a child, and then as you grew up, you like reread it, rewatched it, and was like, oh, I have a completely different view on
0: them. That's a good question. That's you. you. I was an adult when I read it. So.
1: <laughs> well, even just having reread it, do you did you feel that way, or um, once you've s- started doing the class and like thinking about these things differently? You
0: know, I think it's 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 really fascinating to see it through my students' eyes. So one of the things we've done the last couple of years is that they're one of their final pieces of writing in the class is they have to write a letter to or about something in the Harry Potter series, from or about themselves or from someone else in the series. And they have to find scholarship that informs their writing. So they're not sort of writing about the article, but they're, they're using it to help them think about it. And one of my students last year did exactly what you're saying, and she wrote a letter to, to Draco, and her letter started out, you know, Dear Draco, I'm sorry that I hated you my entire childhood. But the article that she used to inform it was about what it meant to be living with an emotionally abusive father. Right, and so it's, and and it does, I think that, I think one of the things about this series is that as you, not even as you get older, as you reread it, because the first time you read it, you wanna know what's gonna happen and who's gonna kill Voldemort and what's gonna happen there. But I think the pain of so many characters comes through very clearly the more you read it and it gives you a very different perspective about why they might be doing and, you know, that, you know, Harry had some strengths that Draco didn't have and that if Draco had some of that, things might have been different, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, Dumbledore, obviously, is, like, troubling once you get through all of it. And Snape, you know, I got confused. Because Snape still does some really horrible things. Like, we were talking about, you know, Neville um, says his worst fear is Snape. And in the in the class before they go to Lupin's to fight, to, you know, uh, face the art, he's in Snape's class, and Snape is like, I know you're terrible at potions, Neville. You have to make this potion, and if you don't do it, and we're going to feed it to your pet toad, and if you do it right, your toad will just shrink But if you do it wrong, it's probably going to die. And he makes him... And then, you know, Hermione kind of secretly helps Neville out. Um, But so Snape is, like, really difficult because I kind of want to love him for, like, his integrity and for protecting Harry and all that. But, like, he still makes people feel terrible about themselves. Well, and
0: when we find out at the end why he's treated Harry that badly we sort of forgive him for all kinds of things, but he didn't have to treat Neville that badly. Or to, Hermione. Right, to accomplish the same goal. I mean, he could have been Slytherin-ish without being that sadistic, right? But there's a level of sadism that he brings to that that really is above and beyond.
1: Yeah, and again, he came from an abuse... There's a lot of abuse in Harry Potter. He came from an abusive home, too, so it's complicated, yeah. All right, any other, any other questions? Yeah. Um, I was wondering... They, going back
0: to the epilogue, they, like, discuss, they mention the children in the epilogue. So I was wondering if you could discuss how the psyches of those children might be
2: affected, knowing that their parents basically saved or like, even ruined the world.
1: Right. So oh, I didn't, I didn't repeat the other questions, but I'll, I'll do this one. That the question was, um, how might the children of the main characters, the children who are mentioned in the epilogue, be affected, their psyches, how are they affected by what their parents have gone through?
0: So one of one of the things that we that we know is that um, there are some psychologists that talk about the intergenerational transmission of trauma, right? And we've looked at that with Holocaust survivors and people who have gone through other really horrific experiences. And we see the impact of trauma in their children. Um, and some of some of that, Uh, has always clearly been about sort of the parenting that sort of happens as a result of trauma, needing to protect children and sort of knowing the world is a terrible place and things like that. But there's actually some really interesting data coming from neuroscience that talks about epigenetics, and that trauma actually changes your brain in a way that gets passed down to your children. And I know that sounds sort of like magical and weird, but like actual science behind that. And so we see this intergeneral transmission at the physiological level and not just at like the sort of psychological or social level. But I think the other thing that we see are these narratives, right? And so Harry grows up with the narrative of his parents dying to protect him and sort of all of those things. So he grows up with this really positive narrative, which when we see more about James, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So one of the things that, I, I, that your question makes me think about is what are the narratives that these kids are getting? Because they're not finding out what really happened. They're finding out the story that they are told about what happened, which is going to get filtered through the eyes of who their parents is and who's telling them the story, right? The same way we see, we, I mean, even though the book is written in third person, we see... That we see the Harry Potter story through Harry's eyes. It'd be a very different story if Neville told it. It would be a very different story if Ginny told it, right? And so, um, so it's a great question. And I think they're all going to have a different version of what happened because all of that is filtered through our own experience when we tell the story. And also the way we remember it happening, which may or may not be how it actually happened.
1: That's what I was going to say, but she answered first. So <laughs> I think we have time for one more question if there's one more. Or if not? No? All right. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, By the end of the series, do you believe that Snape is able to redeem himself and all the horrible things he's done, or more by the end are we able to explain but not excuse his actions? Redemption, that's a good question. So
0: until you talked about Neville's toad, I would have said yes. And now I'm not sure. But I think that... um, I think Snape is more... I like Snape better than Dumbledore by the end, which is not exactly your question. <laughs> we can argue about that. Um, I, I, think, I think Snape is inordinately complicated, but I think that at least when we kind of find the backstory, at least with respect to Harry, and maybe he would argue his treatment of other characters is the same, he is doing it... He, he gets to take his animosity towards James, and channel it in this productive way. But at least what he says is he has done all of this in order to protect Harry from Voldemort. And the only way that he can do that effectively is having this consistent narrative of, I'm a Slytherin, I hate Harry, I'm angry at Dumbledore, all of that, right? So if we, if we buy that and if we believe that, I think he's, I think there's some redemption. But, um, but I gotta think about it now. Now, that, now I'm thinking about Neville, so I have to think
1: about it. I feel like it just raises a question for me of like can there be redemption without someone asking for forgiveness? Does someone have to ask for forgiveness for, to be redeemed? Do they have to recognize what they've done and I don't know but I think
0: Snape does. Like I don't know if I don't know if you have to in order to but I think he does at the end. I think I think his connection with Harry in that last scene where Harry takes the tear from the pensive. I feel like that's his moment where he does that to his, to the best of his ability. Maybe not perfectly. It doesn't mean Harry has to forgive him, although Harry does, right? I think that when we think about redemption and forgiveness, someone could someone could be sorry, and that doesn't mean we have to forgive them and sort of all of the things that forgiveness can mean, but yeah.
1: Okay, did I see one more hand? No? All yep. right. Thank you guys so much. Thank this you so, so much. This was so much fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials Podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast, and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.